Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast exists because of members at decodingtv.com. To sign up for ad-free episodes and bonus episodes of the Decoding TV podcast and the Cast of Kings podcast, head on over to decodingtv.com and sign up for a paid membership. Thanks to everyone at Decoding TV for supporting this podcast. It was so sad. You just ruined it. I cried for three days. Darling, please, is going to pay for this. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I'm David Chen. I'm Siddhanta Dlakho. And welcome to this episode of the podcast uh, covering She-Hulk Attorney at Law. This week, we're going to be discussing She-Hulk Attorney at Law, episode four, entitled, Is This Not Real Magic? Uh, but before we get to that, we want to uh, cover something else in the Hulk universe. You know, every week we've been having a new Hulk-related topic to kind of fill out our understanding of Hulk as well as She-Hulk. And this week we're going to be discussing Ang Lee's 2003 film, Hulk. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to dive into She-Hulk episode four, Is This Not Real Magic? You can find more episodes of this show at decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Decoding TV. All right, Sidanth. I think this is one of the first times you watched this movie, Ang Lee's Hulk. Uh, I think this is probably my second or third time watching it. Uh, certainly, I'm a little bit older than you, so I probably have a better memory of it when it came out. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about Ang Lee's Hulk. Sidanth let's do Baca, it. Let's do and, it. Uh, and revisiting this movie after so many years. Uh, it's also really interesting to view Ang Lee's Hulk in light of The Incredible Hulk, because I really think The Incredible Hulk, the Edward Norton version, was like a response to this version of Hulk. You can see, hopefully, how they're very, very different in terms of tone, in terms of the action, um, and uh, and in terms of the world building and, and universe building. So all that said, uh, functionally, I think this is your first time watching this movie, Ang Lee's uh, Hulk. What did you think of the movie? So before I get to that, yes and no, because this is my first time like absorbing it. Yeah. But there are there are certain images and scenes that I remember like I saw them yesterday. Um, so I did watch it in theaters uh, when I was 11. And then I probably watched it in bits and pieces on TV, maybe later that same year. But yeah, as a whole, probably the first time I've seen it. Definitely the first time I've seen it in, gosh, 18 years at this point. Um, and I have to say, I loved it. Oh my I, god. I also really really enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, I think what what you and I are reacting to a lot with revisiting The Incredible Hulk, which is like one of the first Marvel films and now this movie is it this movie particularly is just so different yeah. than any other MCU movies. It reminded me most of actually like a movie like Logan, honestly, mm-hmm. where uh it 
takes a character that we know at this point, but it's like a very darker, grittier spin on uh, on that character, uh, and and kind of un, un, unanticipated in terms of where it's going or what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed watching it as well. It has some problems that we'll get into, but I had a great time watching this movie. Any more thoughts on uh, overall thoughts on this movie? Overall thoughts, yeah. It, it was not what I remember it being, just because, let me put it this way. If it was made today, of course, many, many things about it would be different, but just fundamentally, from like a narrative standpoint, you would have uh, people standing around and explaining oh, well, the Hulk personality is your trauma response to blah, 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 blah. And that's how the drama would play out rather Mm -hmm. than it just being as weirdly subtle and understated as it is. There's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that. But, you know, I I would agree with you that a a lot of the stuff would be, uh, a lot of the themes would be more clearly, explicitly articulated. I I, I agree with that. Yeah, in in words, if not, in the drama itself, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, also, I, I think uh, it's fascinating to watch this movie because it's like a, a superhero film that basically I don't think aspires to be part of any real connected universe uh, to any meaningful degree. Yeah. Um, but probably the most interesting thing about Ang Lee's 2003 film Hulk is that it is the only film I have ever seen, I think, that tries to visually look like an actual comic book, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and there's probably good reasons why they don't attempt anything like this anymore <laughs> because the movie was, relatively speaking, a disappointment um, financially. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, still, it still made a, a bunch of money, but it wasn't like, I think, the hit that people wanted as, as evidenced by the fact that like there was no sequel or anything like that to this movie. Um, but... Yeah, I think uh, that the way that Ang Lee shoots this movie and employs a lot of things like whip pans, dissolves, uh, uh, sort of split screen, like multi split screen, fade, you know, like all kinds of tricks at his disposal to kind mm-hmm. of make this look and feel like an actual comic book. Mm-hmm. And I think the world wasn't ready for it. And I think the world still isn't ready for it. What do you think, what do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> I have to agree with that. And the thing is, so uh, oftentimes you'll see certain scenes from this movie going around on Twitter. And it's just like the comic book paneling type stuff with like, you know, uh, frames like sliding in and out, in and out of the screen. Um, but the thing is, he doesn't use that constantly. It's just during transition scenes and it's during especially like chaotic and intense stuff um and i think he uses it incredibly well i I remember there's this one bit where uh the hulk is in san francisco and a whole bunch of uh armed you know swap members are um surrounding him and and then it's it, it takes place in like four or five different frames and it really reminded me that when when i'm reading a comic book and you have like an action heavy scene like that even if there are word bubbles and such my eyes are just moving from side to side if it's if it's you know a page with multiple panels trying to take in all the action at yeah, once you're, you're from all of, these you're kind of like absorbing it in a different way when it's in a comic book. And yeah. the the movie tries to mirror how you might absorb a comic book, basically. Yeah, right? and I think it does it spectacularly well at times. Um, not just in that scene I mentioned. Sometimes 
you know, just when like an act, like when an action scene begins, it'll begin in the form of, you know, two different comic panels and you have the option of looking at one character's perspective or the other, which is, you know, on one hand, it is something that, you know, is done in the comics medium. But on the other hand, just in cinema, it's such a rarity to be able to, you know, it, it seems so simple at the outset, but at the same time, films don't often do that. They don't present things from, you know, differing perspectives at the same time. And there's a very good reason for that because, you know, the the human eye, the human brain doesn't often, you know, have the capability to like absorb these different things at once. Um, and, you know, if you watch something like Godard's Goodbye to Language, his 3D film, you know, he tries to do that as well. And it becomes like a very intentional headache. So you have to be very measured and controlled when you do something like this. And I think there isn't a single moment in this movie where I'm like confused or my intention is divided. I think it's like surprisingly precise in the way it uses its like panel elements. I would agree. I think it sometimes leads to just goofy things we've ever never seen before. The biggest one I remember seared into my brain is when Josh Lucas's character gets exploded and then it kind of free, <laughs> kind of freeze frames and then it goes to like another frame on the comment and it's it's the most bizarre experience because this guy is getting literally killed. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like a goofy kind of whatever. Now, that is probably how that would take place in a comic book. Like yeah. it's very similar to how it would take place in a comic book. And I think that uh what the movie asks you to do is hold these contradictory ideas of hey this can be a a terrible character who physically tortured our main lead who is now himself getting comeuppance and getting exploded Mm -hmm. and also that's all kind of goofy like they Mm -hmm. want you to kind of hold these two ideas in your head which comic books do as well right comic books is like um often uh inherently stylized over the top and at the same time, dealing with very weighty issues, as is this movie. Other things I like about this movie, let's talk about them, right? Like, um, I think this movie, Hulk, the Ang Lee version, has the best depiction of Bruce Banner dealing with anger issues mm-hmm. since this character, since this movie came out. Mm-hmm. So, from 2003 to now, there has never been a better pic- depiction of this character being angry and like struggling with that and dealing with that. And that being like a force that must be tamed in all of the MCU. Like yep. it, it has not even come close to this. Um, and there's probably many good reasons for that. They haven't gotten around to it logistically. Like it has been <laughs> practical, but like, uh, but I think the resulting movie here is very dark and, yep. uh, and upsetting like it's it's very brooding like we literally spend many minutes of this movie just watching eric bana as bruce banner brooding trying to control his barely concealed rage you know like it's just it's an upsetting movie it's to to Mm -hmm. think about some of the the topics and ideas that are brought up um what did you think about the depiction of anger and uh bruce banner's journey to control it in this movie there's one moment that sticks out to me above all the others, and that's when he's, I think, just finished fighting off the monster poodles, um, and he transforms back into Banner. Um, but 
he's still seething with rage, whether it's at his actions or his father having set these dogs on Betty. He's still like, he's still incredibly angry. And it's not, you know, uh, like a stylized superhero anger, like, grr, me mad, me smash. It is a real and visceral emotional response. And I think that's something that this movie does incredibly well and that Eric Bana does incredibly well, which is capturing what rage often feels like. It is this thing that, you know, no matter how much you try to bottle it up, it still, you know, it still seeps out. It's like a pressure cooker. And I think so much of the work that Bana is doing uh, in this movie um, speaks to that idea and, and really, you know, is woven in thematically with what the Hulk is in this movie. Because, yeah, in in the MCU films, theoretically, you know, the Hulk is an embodiment of rage because he, you know, hulks out, he goes crazy, he breaks things. But in, in Ang Lee's depiction of it, um, the Hulk is not just the actions associated with anger. He is an emotional embodiment of it because the Hulk in this movie, you look at the way he's designed. He's like a child. He's like, he's like a little boy and you feel an amazing amount of sympathy for him, but it's not like a little boy throwing a tantrum. It's a little boy who's constantly scared. Like you look at the close-ups of the Hulk character. And I think this is probably my favorite on-screen depiction of the Hulk itself um and what i find is that yeah sometimes you know he's not the hulk is not explicitly emoting but this movie is so well crafted that it becomes kind of a a kuleshov effect and his eyes are so alluring that you know you, you see everything that's going on around him and you cut back to a close up of the hulk and you're like damn this this hulk is sad <laughs> and and you know the, he has all these memories and experiences bottled up and then they just kind of grow out of him he can't let them out and the more he gets hurt the angrier he gets he seems to expand like a balloon right as if like his anger from within him you know can't be contained yeah uh and on that note you know this movie has caught in a lot of flack has caught a lot of flack for its cg uh, as looking dated watching it again i thought it was fine Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't think it was bad. It seemed pretty solid for the time, which was mm-hmm. almost 20 years ago, right? So, uh, it's but yeah, it's an interesting comment about the Hulk being childlike, uh, being scared all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does go to one of the initial complaints. About, another one of the initial complaints about the movie, too, is that uh, the action in the movie, people felt a little bit lacking. And you can kind of see how the action in The Incredible Hulk, the Edward Norton version, is like way different in terms mm-hmm. of style and character. The biggest difference being that in The Incredible Hulk, uh, he's fighting humans a lot of the time, mm-hmm. right? In in a lot of that movie, he's fighting humans or another Hulk-like creature for most mm-hmm. of that movie. Um, whereas in this movie, uh, he's fighting CG poodles uh, in the darkness in the forest, right? Mm-hmm. And like, and then he's fighting kind of helicopters towards the end. Now, uh, 
I really appreciate this movie now because I'm like, oh, wow, this is so different than what we usually get 99% of the time. At the time, yeah. though, I do remember being a little bit dissatisfied. I'm like, that's it. That's all the action is him fighting a couple of tanks and leaping from place to place. But uh, the the desert sequences are just so breathtaking, you know, to, to rewatch them again and seeing him jump through the desert. And um, there's this one incredible shot where he like, uh, is jumping up towards the camera and you see like the cluster bomb explode behind him. That's like mm-hmm. just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it's also kind of this demonstration of uh, American military might. And at the same time, American military weakness and it's, it's inability to withstand this one creature's power. Uh, and so th- there's a lot of great moments, but yeah, he, he never really fights humans, right? Like, and even when he gets to San Francisco, like Jennifer Connelly's character shows up and then he kind of shrinks back down to, and that's it. Right. Um, but yeah. So at the time, I think it was like people wanted the action to be more fun and footloose and fancy free. And um, now looking back on it, it's like, Hey, we have tons of that kind of action. All right. We have literally dozens of movies that have the kind of action that I think people uh, might've been looking for in this movie. Now, what this is, is something very special and different. Right. Uh, that focuses more on the, uh, this character's isolation in this like vast landscape uh, in a way that I think is really, again, beautiful and breathtaking. What did you think of the action in this movie? I, I was just going to go off what you were saying. Like, you look at the climax of this movie, look how different it is to all the climaxes we get in, you know, not just superhero movies, but Hollywood blockbusters in general today. It's It's incredibly intimate. Like, there's a lot happening on screen, certainly. It's filled with CG, um, and it, I come to think of it, it's the first in, um, I guess what you'd call the trilogy of superhero movies, turning their main villains into clouds, followed by, <laughs> um, uh, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer and then Green Lantern. But in this case, it, it's this dazzling and genuinely meaningful CGI mishmash of like the Hulk and his dad kind of almost becoming one in a way. And the final images uh, of the, you know, battle, so to speak, like the two of them, their egos, their rage, their, you know, all the things that they are and the things that they deal with becoming this literal enormous bubble that, you know, can't seem to contain all of it. It's like, it's like this, this being this formless being that's engorging and you see their faces projected onto it. It's, it's weirdly abstract in a way that you would not absolutely wouldn't get in a superhero movie today. It kind of at times reminded me of like Evangelion. Mm. Um, well, you know, you're, you're talking about the one part of the movie I didn't like, which is all, all the Nick Nolte stuff. Um, oh, okay. I didn't enjoy that character. Like, to me, you, you were talking about how subtle the movie is. I think the Nick Nolte character is a little bit unsubtle, you know? Like, Ooh, okay. It's, it's about how, hey, uh, you're dealing with daddy issues, right? The, mm-hmm. the sins of the father, the traumas that the father has inflicted upon you. Can you escape them, you know? Can you rage against them and in doing so be free from them? Like, and it makes those things explicit. And Nick Nolte just spends a lot of time in this movie just literally shouting at people what the mm-hmm. themes of the movie are. And <laughs> I thought that was, that was pretty rough. Uh, and then, and then I thought the ending was just absolutely bizarre. In, in my opinion, I, I agree with you that it is unique. Uh, and there is that scene where he confronts, they confront each other, like w- under the big white lights, like yeah. while under the military thing. And 
the whole time I kept thinking, man, Sam Elliott's got to be fired like three times because <laughs> he's for he makes a brilliant decision like let the Hulk go, let him leave the the underground base. We'll fight him outside. It's like, okay, I understand why that's better for you, but is it better for society mm, that, you, mm-hmm. that you let the Hulk out of the underground bunker that he has no idea how to get out of? <laughs> um, and then later on, he's like, okay, I'm going to let Nick Nolte see the Hulk just one more time, you know, yeah. and we'll incinerate them if uh, something bad happens. But it's like, nope, they just, I don't know if you can tell, they're kind of invincible. Anyway, um, so Sam Elliott gets an F for being good at his job in this movie. <laughs> That's entirely fair. Yeah, yeah, but then, uh, but they have this great confrontation, which I actually thought was really powerful. Like mm-hmm. when Eric Bana and Nick Nolte go at each other, and it's like just a, a great dramatic scene. Again, didn't love the Nick Nolte character in general, but like that's just a great piece of acting between the two of them at the end. Mm-hmm. And then they have this like CG fight scene. I mean, the last twenty minutes really f- is supposed to be a denouement because to me it really feels like it climaxes in San Francisco. Like that's when. Yeah the climax of the movie is. And then this other stuff all felt tacked on. And then you're introducing this idea of this like energy being in the last like 20 minutes. I know he, you, you saw him earlier, but like that's really when he comes into his own as the energy being. Yeah. Um, it didn't, it didn't work for me uh, when I saw it originally. It doesn't work for me today, but I appreciate what you're saying, which is that it is at the very least a unique ending, mm-hmm. you know? And, and what it brings up for me is a really interesting question. The, the Nolte character does, I think his name in this movie is David Banner, which is what uh, Bruce Banner, the, the Hulk's name was in like the, the TV series in the 80s. David, the dad, does he love his son? Mm-hmm. Does he genuinely love his son? And that's a big question in a movie like this that is about the kind of dad that Nick Nolte plays, uh, where, you know, arguably, you know, abusive, manipulative, whatever you want to call it. He definitely wants the version of his son that is him. That is the experiments he did on himself. That is this, you know, superpowered or whatever you want to call it being, right? So he is definitely using his son. Yeah. But it, it without articulating it in words, it keeps... It it keeps asking the question through Nick Nolte's performance, like, shit, does this dad really love his son? And maybe, and that's the complicated thing about something like, you know, an, a, an abusive relationship. Like, yeah, it's shitty and it can be, you know, really scarring. But, you know, you can't always uncouple it from the genuine feelings that might also exist in it's a really messy thing that I I don't think I've seen like, you know, uh, certainly a superhero movie really do in this way. Um, And that's why, you know, Bruce Banner seems to have such complicated feelings as well. Um, Yeah. The movie doesn't like ruminate on it too much and the climax doesn't, you know, it's not really circling this idea. It is, it becomes its own, like you said, this abstract CGI thing. Um, But yeah, I found this to be genuinely one of the more, powerful movies of this kind like it, the way it hit me today uh it wouldn't have hit me you know years and years ago but you know small things like the way he the way the father describes you know uh having accidentally stabbed his wife he's so in denial about it that he doesn't yeah. say i accidentally killed her he says 
the the knife like she and the knife became one she and the knife like merged that. and became yeah, one they merged and, yeah and and that's how and that's why like his powers as like the absorbing man from the comics that's it seems to be just like this 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 magnification of his denial like this is just how he sees the world um and and similarly my it the scene where okay so there, there's this bit where you know bruce and betty go and visit bruce's childhood home and he starts to find a part of himself. And then when he comes back during this action scene as the Hulk, he stops in front of his his childhood home, right? It's a silent moment. And then the military destroys it, like sends a missile to it. It explodes. And that scene just took my breath away because I know what that means for this character. And I can't recall a single other scene in like any other superhero movie that has like just made me like almost clutch my chest and go like that hurts you know mhm mhm uh and the way it's done is amazing like just literally the shot that you're describing is incredible too because you see the explosion before you hear it yeah um so it's like this um just like in real life you'd light travels fast in the sound you see it like a split second before you hear it and uh it's amazing i mean only was really going for it in a way mm-hmm. that people did not appreciate back then. You know, this movie cost $137 million to make. It's worldwide box office is $245 million, right? Like, that's not great. Yeah. You know, they they want this movie to make, you know, at least $100 million more than it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love the ideas behind the Nick Nolte character. Yeah. Like, and, and this idea of when you have a child and you sense something evil within them, Mm-hmm. Should you uh, should you do things to stop that? Right. Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, the father wants things from the son, right? And it's like that's very true of real life fathers as well. Like mm-hmm. often, children are our ways of living out our fantasies and dreams that we never got to accomplish. And it's like this movie takes that idea and makes it real in the form of like him being the Hulk, and um, and these are all like fascinating ideas. I just don't think the execution was quite. Mm-hmm. there for the Nick Nolte character stuff. Yeah. Everything else I thought was really great. Um I will say also like Eric Bana and Jennifer Connelly are like kind of implausibly uh attractive for scientists. Like I think I had just seen Eric Bana play a Delta Force uh character in Black Hawk Down around this time. Um or, or I was going to see him, you know, in two, actually yeah, 2001 was when I saw him in Black Hawk Down and so it's like uh, to, so for him to go from like literally one of the most badass characters I'd ever seen in a movie to he's a humble scientist uh, was a little bit of a stretch. Um, it's a little bit distracting, but you know. I understand. Well, there are there are attractive scientists, but I get what you're saying. It's Hollywood, so it's yeah. it's true. It's, it's yeah. True. There's tons of attractive scientists. I'm not. Yeah, no, 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 no I get it. it. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> you know, these, these these guys are hot. That's what I'm saying. Like they're super yeah. hot. And um, you and your you and your anti science propaganda. <laughs> um, so the other thing I wanted to mention, I guess, is the score by Danny Elfman. Oh um, yeah. Now this score came out. I think this this would have been a couple years after Spider Man. Now again, the mm-hmm. context is in two thousand three, Spider Man is two thousand one. Spider Man came out, and that was like that movie was a massive success. It made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and it was great. Like people still love that movie, right? Yeah, this um, was smack dab in the middle of Spider Man, Spider's Man, uh, one and two, which were two thousand two and four. 
Right. And yeah. I think p- people at the time were like expecting something more along those lines in terms of the campy tone and uh, and so on. Now, Danny Elfman wrote the theme for Spider-Man. So they're like, hey, we got to get Elfman to do the theme for this. It's very different and it's very evocative and plaintive and mournful, I think. And I really love mm-hmm. um, the theme. So wanted to give a shout out to Danny Elfman, who does a great yeah. job <laughs> with, with the music for Hulk. Shout out to Danny. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, a couple of, couple of things I want to mention real quick. Um, this is generally the kind of, uh, sorry, Betty Ross, Jennifer Connelly's character, is generally the kind of role in a superhero movie that would feel you know, completely thankless, the um, the love interest, the supporting female character. And yeah, you know, it has been a trend. And, in... and certainly, certainly was thankless in The Incredible Hulk, I would argue, right? That's With, fair. Uh, when um, Liv Tyler plays that character. Yeah. And and look, again, like it's, it's, you know, it's a trend throughout Hollywood that this is sort of a stock type of character and, you know, it, it is changing as well. But she, she, acts her heart out in this movie and i yeah. think it it leads to some really incredible moments that i think are again very meaningful for a film like this where um she's she's the one saying you know just just give him a chance to calm down and that's you know it's it seems like a very you know kind of simple idea but it it speaks to this thing of like finding someone who recognizes not just who you are but what you need mm. that I found really, really meaningful from like just just in terms of like movie romance, because, you know, Hollywood romance is this grand starry eyed thing. But it gets into this movie gets into the the less comfortable aspects of it. Like, yeah, romance also involves like seeing the uglier, messier side of someone and learning to accept it and learning to navigate your way around it and it's not like this is some kind of like revolutionary romance film it's just one of those things that i appreciated that not very many superhero movies do um and one final thing i wanted to say about this movie is that it's it's weird like there are so many dreamlike sequences and just this abstract imagery from time to time when it's transitioning from scene to scene um it's it's a blast to watch like it doesn't stop that was going to be my last point as well, which mm-hmm. is the movie is extremely trippy. <laughs> and I think it starts early on, you know, e- even with the opening credits of them doing like microbiology and, uh, and it starts early on with um, this image that it was just really arresting when I saw it um, of like at one point, you know, Eric Bond is having all these like weird ass visions. And then like you see an I- image of a door that's used many times throughout the movie. And it's like a door and behind it is like this Hulk. That's like the actual Hulk in the yeah. shadows. Yeah. And he's just sitting there like kind of sitting there like breathing and just chilling. And that's it. That's the whole thing. Like there's no, you know, he comes out later. He, the Hulk starts talking in later visions, but I was just like, wow, what a, mm-hmm. it's, it's very obvious. It's like, okay, yes, I understand the door is like his mind or whatever, you know? And it's like, it's, it's not a complex metaphor, but it's just like, Hey, we're going to take this, metaphor and show it to you in concrete form and it's just like and of course the the whole movie does that throughout you know uh in varying ways it's really trippy and weird and there's bizarre imagery it's daring you know yeah and um and it's also i really really appreciate it so much more today than when i saw it back then because yeah i was really expecting like a spider-man like fun romp (laughs) right and then you go see this movie and it's like what was that and you know and there was like barely any action in the movie at all 
Um, but I love your point about the resolution to the action scene is, uh, hey, I'm, I understand who you are and what you need, as opposed to, again, compared to The Incredible Hulk, um, like, release me against the Kraken. Like, I can, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Like I can aim this thing, you know. I, I like I know we've just spent the last hour and a half trying to control it, but you know now it's time to let it go. You know, it's like okay, but like I, I love that. Yeah, that that remains being understood is a theme throughout this episode, mm-hmm. throughout this uh, movie that you point out really well. Yeah, and looking back, it's also interesting to see where this fits in Ang Lee's filmography, uh, given the films that he would make afterwards, uh, especially Brokeback Mountain, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, and. Gemini Man? I was going to say Method Man for some reason. God, uh, I need more coffee. And and Gemini Man, because <laughs> all of these films in their own way, like explore masculine imagery and like what really lies underneath it. And I think uh, I haven't seen enough of his work from the 90s, uh, but it, it feels like, you know, The Incredible Hulk, sorry, not The Incredible Hulk, Hulk, just Hulk, sort of kicks off his like Hollywood wave of like, really working that idea into his stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this was kind of one of the first movies that introduced me to this actor, mm-hmm. Eric Bana. And uh, I think, yeah, the, the early two thousands were like a really great time for him and, and, uh, and made a lot of use of his strengths, I think. So any other thoughts on Hulk? Truly a movie that I would, recommend wholeheartedly today in ways that i wouldn't have back then and uh i had a great time revisiting i was like this is, yeah. this is awesome i thought i would be like Ugh, i remember why i didn't like this movie but i had a great time rewatching this yeah and if you have doubts that it's it is at the very least a very interesting work um it, it might not be something you consider good but it is really interesting and very ambitious and truly before its time like this is a movie that if they made it 10 years from now, from now, it would still have a place. Like I would be like, mm-hmm. Oh, it makes sense as something that would happen 10 years from now, you know, like, uh, as where comic book movies evolve too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it's fantastic. I love it unreservedly. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on Ang Lee's 2003 film Hulk. And you're listening to decoding TV. Ready to pop the question. The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So now the Laka, let's talk about She-Hulk episode four. Is this not real magic? I'm David Chen. You're listening to Decoding TV. 
let's talk about overall thoughts on the episode. What do you think of this episode of the show? This is the first one in the season where I just I had a blast from start to finish. No real complaints. Like it's it this is where I think the show kind of comes into its own as like, you know, yeah, it's a half hour comedy. And this is you know, it's it's an episode of a sitcom, basically. Um and I laughed again so hard throughout this episode. Uh, you know, there's there's minimal like actual She Hulk, so I have very few complaints about uh complaints about the um the visual effects. And yeah, I had a very good time. Yeah, I thought it's a lot of fun. And uh, obviously Wong comes back in this episode and he's always a great time. Excuse um, me? Uh, it's it's Wongers? Yes. I'm really loving Wongers in this, uh, mm-hmm. this series. One thing that's been interesting to kind of reflect on is how subsequent Marvel films and or TV shows try to fill in gaps that are left unfilled by um, the earlier movies, right? Mm-hmm. And I think developing the character of Wong has uh, really been done a lot of favors by both uh, Multiverse of Madness as well as uh, as this show. Um, so anyway, let's talk about a couple of, uh, of specific scenes and then we can discuss the main plot lines overall. But uh, the episode begins... In a completely unfamiliar place. So it's like a total cold open. We have no idea where we are. There's a magician named Donnie Blaze uh, who is trying to do a magic show, but uh, it's not very impressive. So he takes out the portal ring and starts like transporting people from the audience into other dimensions, uh, including Madison, uh, which is has spelled with two N's and one Y, but it's not where you think. <laughs> Uh, so she gets sent to a different dimension, and then uh, she gets eventually teleported to where Wong is, uh, which I think is at the Kamertage, right? Yeah, in Kathmandu. Yeah, and he, uh, you hear the uh, Sopranos theme song, and he is watching, he's doing a rewatch of the Sopranos. I guess this is his first time, actually, so it's not mm-hmm. a rewatch of the Sopranos. He's watching Sopranos for the first time. Uh, and... <sighs> Uh, first of all, I'm just saying I'm amazed at how many people who I talk with have never seen The Sopranos. You're one of them. Uh, I was sorry. reading I was reading uh, Miles McNutt's uh, newsletter, Episodic Medium. He apparently has also not seen The Sopranos, from what I can tell. Um, but it, it's a show, I'll point out, that still it's holds up. It's a show? Could, yeah, thank sorry. you. Thank you. <laughs> it's, a show, it's a show that still holds up. Like I actually did a, an entire rewatch like, in the past year, and it's mm-hmm. still excellent. Um, and... Wong is watching one of the best episodes of The Sopranos ever made. Possibly the best episode of The Sopranos ever made. Uh, it's called Long-Term Parking. I thought it was pretty hilarious, by the way, that they don't show any images from The Sopranos. So I think they just didn't want to get the rights to it. Uh, they show the name of the show, the episode, paused on the TV. They mm-hmm. have the theme song, but they didn't get any rights to the actual show itself. Uh, so little little Easter egg about rights for you there. Uh, is they, they were able <laughs> to evoke the feeling of The Sopranos without actually showing any Sopranos. Uh, and then at that point, Madison spoils uh, that episode of the Sopranos. And then Wong says, Donnie Blaze will pay for this. Now, I want to ask you, Sidanta, somebody who's never watched Sopranos, like, mm-hmm. are you familiar? Like, Madison drops some major freaking spoilers for the Sopranos in the course of this episode. Mm-hmm. And I guess I am curious, like, A, did you retain any of, of those spoilers? I purposely left it out of our opening mm-hmm. clip. Um, but also, uh, you know, 
more broadly speaking, what's the statute of limitations on spoilers for a show like The Sopranos, like where you can just drop them openly? So let's start with my first question. Like, did you did you retain any of the spoilers or remember anything that she said? I don't remember the first one. Uh, I remember the second one she drops in the courtroom, I think. But I think that's one I vaguely knew uh, because if I'm not mistaken, um, like I had I had seen a reference to it when um, The Many Saints of Newark came out. Mm, uh, yeah. because did, you watch that, did you watch that movie? No, 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 I didn't because yeah, I, I've yeah. only seen a couple of episodes of The Sopranos. Because if I'm not mistaken, it's like a character who dies who is then like, is he narrating the movie or something like that? Or am I completely wrong about this? Yeah, in many sense of New York, yes. That's right. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I think I, ha- I had sort of an idea because I had like read yeah. that, oh, a character who's dead is the narrator for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, as much as I would have liked to have not known that, like, again, like, uh, it's, it's, when did the show end? It's been a while, right? 2007. So it ended oh. in 2007. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, I so was. It's been, it's been 15 years since the end yeah. of The Sopranos. So. Yeah. I, I know about the ending of The Sopranos. I know, like, what happens in the end. I know p- how people are, like, divided over what it means. Um, I'm intrigued by it because I like the imagery. Um, and I want to be able to get to that ending. I want to take the journey and get to that ending and see how I feel about it. Um, but look, the, the Sopranos is such a big part of, you know, Western popular culture that I think, you know, after a while, a spoiler like this is it's sort of, like, inevitable. Um, I, it's it's shitty of Madison to have drunkenly dropped those spoilers, knowing that Wong was, you know, well, yeah, she she didn't know it was his first time watching, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's it's you get you have to assume it might be your first time, yeah, watching. yeah, yeah. And that this is the thing is Wong has held out on The Sopranos for fifteen years, and then he like long term parking that episode is like fifth sixth season, it's like really close to the end of the show. But um, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So I can't imagine getting that far. Yeah. Literally, you're about to watch the episode. Yeah. And then to get a spoiler dropped on you right there. Like, that sucks, you know? Yeah. Um, what I'm wondering is, like, how long has Wong had access to The Sopranos? Mm. Probably not very long because um, it wouldn't have been streaming, like, in Nepal until, like, Four or five years ago, probably. Well, first, first of all, he's had access for a long time because yeah, he yeah. can just get he can just get DVDs and Blu-rays. That's at true. Any, I was going to say time. that's yeah. well. There's there's a larger conversation there, like import fees and all that. Like I'm I'm speaking from like personal experience he here. He can he can teleport them with portals. Wait, wait, wait. I was going to say okay. I was going to okay. say like right. he did live in the U.S. for a bit as like the um, yeah but, the the sorcerer supreme and all that. So so he did have a bit of access. He did have access to it as well. Yeah, um, but. No, but like uh, that, that brings up an interesting question. Would there be import fees if you portal something over? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's like going to, uh, you know, I'm in Seattle. I can drive to Portland and buy things. Right, for, right. For, but that's for, within for, for the same time. country. Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm the... saying, I'm saying, I'm saying there's, uh, when I go to Portland and buy something, I, I don't pay any sales tax on it, right? So mm-hmm. if I'm buying an iPhone, I don't need to pay hundreds of dollars sales tax. Now, technically, I'm supposed to pay what's called a use tax okay. on anything that I am using in Seattle, um, but it's extremely difficult to enforce use okay. taxes, right? So my guess is it's the same deal. Is like, yes, technically, Wong should be paying import fees on his Sopranos DVD slash Blu-rays, um, but he's probably not doing it. Is my guess, you know? Yeah, so the the reason I'm saying all this is because I was like vaguely aware that there was a gangster show called The Sopranos <laughs> at the time that it was airing because it wasn't it wasn't like big in India at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh I didn't really hear people talking about it until I came to the US for college in like 2009. 
I think it was in 2010 that I watched like, I want to say the first maybe five or seven episodes. I didn't really retain much. I, you know, got busy and didn't end up watching much more. Um, But I would like to, Uh, hint, hint, in case you're, you know, thinking of something to cover next. (laughs) But, but back on track yeah like that that sucks wong i've had that happen to me like i have a friend who was lending me the dvd for fight club in high school and he knew that i hadn't seen it yet which is why he was lending me the dvd he hands me the dvd and he says oh you know that blah 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 spoiler right i'm like i didn't i didn't know that no like that's why you're giving this to me <laughs> that's terrible that's terrible well the th- the thing is okay first of all i, I mean long term parking is the name of the episode season 5 episode 12 of the sopranos it's in my estimation one of the greatest tv episodes of all time okay. it's just an, an incredible episode that like um madison says she cried for days afterward watching this episode. Mm-hmm. And I, I won't say I cried days afterwards. That's, that didn't happen to me. But like, it, it is an episode whose events reverberate to, like, to me till this day. Like, it's still a really, it's a really powerful episode. Um, there's another spoiler that Madison drops later on in the episode. Those are arguably two of the biggest Soprano spoilers of all time. <laughs> Between that and the ending, those are like the top three Soprano spoilers. So Wow, okay. Madison has really bad spoiler etiquette, I think. Uh, is the point that we're trying to make. And Madison's canceled. Yes. <laughs> and it really sucks. Okay. Uh so we also see that like Madison is transported to like all these different places on her way to Wong's lair, mm-hmm. right? And so um there are uh there's theoretically like this this hell lair. People are maybe like speculating that Mephisto might be at the place where she's at, you know, and so on. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Um, I'm yeah. leaving. I can't do this. Not I can't I can't watch another Marvel show where we're gonna talk about Mephisto. I can't do it. I, I just oh man. No, stop, please. We've been doing this since there has been Marvel TV. Like he'll show up when he shows up. I'm yeah. sorry to be a bummer about this, but like I think it's been like since episode like one or two of WandaVision. WandaVision, like, it's been over it's a Mephisto. year. It's Mephisto. It's Mephisto. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I think they might like knowingly be doing it. I <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, also want to point out that Donnie Blaze is very similar in name to Johnny Blaze, which That's is true. the name of Ghost Rider. So maybe it's a Ghost Rider vague reference. Anyway. And um, speaking of HBO shows... Donnie Plays is played by uh, Reese Coiro, who also plays Billy Walsh, my man Billy Walsh, on Entourage. Yes. Also, I believe he is married to Kat Coiro, who uh, directed many of the episodes of She-Hulk season one. So. Oh, okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So then we cut to Jen in her house. Uh, she's wearing an oversized suit, which is very funny because mm-hmm. I was like, at first I was like, "Wow, they really did a bad job with the wardrobe <laughs> in, this, in the show." And then it's like, "Oh, it's because she's going to expand into Shield later, so it's nice that she like prepares." You don't see Bruce Banner preparing, yeah, you know, like he's going to expand, but um, uh, it's nice that God. she thinks ahead. She's what obviously a, what a what a Mary Sue. She has foresight. <laughs> so. Uh, she says, oh, you're happy. Uh, she's looking at the camera. You're happy. Uh, I guess that's because Wong shows up uh, in this episode. Everyone loves Wong. It's like giving the show Twitter armor for a week. Now, what's interesting about this statement is that it almost feels like... I, I don't know what the production schedule of She-Hulk was. Based on the CG, it seems like maybe they're literally making this episode up until like, 
four days ago, but <laughs> but I have to assume that the shows were written and produced weeks or months ago, right? Mm-hmm. So g- taking that into account, it feels like they really anticipated a a, a bunch of whiny baby men would get all t- bent out of shape about the fact that there's a She-Hulk, which you know accurately predicted, and then. Uh, and then that, like, there would be, like, a lot of discourse around the show on Twitter and, and, like, that the show might need Twitter armor, which I just think is interesting to kind of predict that you might need Twitter armor. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like, huh. Uh, like, and, and I do think to some degree the show is right in that there's people who have a politics of grievance online that they use to, like, attack the show in a very unfortunate and regressive way uh, that... Does a uh, does an appearance from Wong help to stem that? I don't really think so, but it's just interesting that the show conceives of it in that way, you know? David, today on IGN, I published a review for the Olivia Wilde movie, Don't Worry, Darling. Mm-hmm. And I scrolled down to the comments for a second, and, like, all the comments are about She-Hulk. <laughs> and, and the thing is, like, IGN has a She-Hulk review up for the latest episode, so I don't, I don't know what's going on. So, yeah, you need, like, I think Twitter armor is a good way to put it. It's not going to work as Twitter armor. Yes. I don't think anything yes. would at this point. Um, but, yeah, they, I think they knew going in what kind of response they would get. Wow, I'm looking. I'm looking at your review now, and it's uh, yeah. There, there's. I can't believe there's people complaining about She-Hulk on the on the review of Don't Worry, Darling. Yeah. Uh, but people sometimes people have a fixation on things. Okay, so <laughs> the main plots of this episode are uh, Wong wants a cease and desist uh, put on Donnie Blaze because he learned a lot of secrets while training to be. Uh, a, a sorcerer but like didn't um didn't pass the program and it, it's funny to like think of these kind of ancillary characters who uh were part of the training but didn't cut it couldn't cut it and then what mm-hmm. happens to those people they become cut rate magicians who uh aren't very good and actually risk untangling the astral plane um so and it's it's interesting that he still has his sling ring. You'd think that if you you know you didn't pass, you didn't become like a full time sorcerer, you'd have to give that back, like turning in your gun and your badge. Yeah, but there's probably sling rings everywhere. I mean, true. Zendaya used one in No Way Home. You know, like there's there's tons of these these uh, things yeah. lying around everywhere, right? They they I don't think they have good sling ring control. Is what I'm trying to say. Well, we need um, to introduce some legislation for that. That's hundred percent. Hundred percent. Call your call your local congressman. So that's one plot line. The other plot line is uh, that Jen is trying to uh, get a date. She's trying mm-hmm. to uh, be on the MCU equivalent of Tinder called Matcher, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to date as a highly successful woman in her 30s, uh, which is a very challenging dating situation. Uh, at least uh, as I've heard from the TikToks that I watch, um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not actually in the market right now, but, uh, that is what I understand. So, so those are the two plots and they kind of intersect. It's very sitcom where like one plot kind of like distracts from the other plot and vice versa. They don't really have too much of a connection this episode, like they did in yeah. the first episode. Although, uh, she does get interrupted mm-hmm. during her date, uh, by Wong at the end. Now, you know, it does seem to me like this is probably what the structure of the show is going to be, right? Every week mm-hmm. there's going to be a case, um, and every week Jen's going to deal with something in her personal life. 
there's just there are tons of threads left dangling from previous weeks that we haven't addressed. Like the attack on her from last week, not even touched upon. Uh, Renee Elise Goldsberry appeared last episode. Don't even see her. Uh, Titania, like we don't even we get a hint of her and filing for trademark, you know, violation this episode. But that's it. Um, so yeah, I thought really... I thought Titania was going to be like the villain of this show, but it's been four episodes and she's been in it for like a minute. Yeah, literally like less than five <laughs> minutes, you know. So the show is really stretching things out. Yeah, I think, uh, is what's clear. So. Yes, but I was again. I was delighted by just everything in this episode. Like, yeah, the A and the B plot don't really connect. They just happen to intersect at one point. Um, which is yeah, a bit of a downer after like last week, where she turned to the camera and she's like bringing the A and B plot together. Nice. Um, doesn't have the luxury of doing that this time. But uh, yeah, I like that. You know, the the different dates that she goes on and the different kinds of people that she meets. And yeah, it's very you know, standard, like, you know, uh, Twitter thread about dating kind of thing. Uh, but some of them, some of it is very specific to She-Hulk. Like the first guy she goes on a date uh, with, by the way, uh, the former WWE wrestler, David Otonga, um, he uh, shows off about how much he can bench uh, and how much he can lift because he seems to be insecure in front of She-Hulk. <laughs> and then like, there's another guy who... Uh, I think just wants to like test out whether or not she's indestructible. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It, it is sad that she uh, gets a lot more attention as She Hulk than as her normal self, and yeah. then as her as her human self, I should say. Don't want to um, be um, discriminatory of different superhero forms, and uh, and then the guy who she is with, who's like is the nicest of them all, is only interested in her when she is She Hulk form, like. <laughs> Uh, when she's normal, or sorry, in her human-sized body, the next day, uh, he's like, "Oh, um, who are you?" Like, doesn't he, doesn't, and then like leaves immediately. And he's a and major I think, dick about it. Exactly, and I think it's probably speaks to one of the show's themes of the idea that She-Hulk, as a persona and as a physical body, can be um, commodified by people, and mm-hmm. and it's probably like a commentary on how women in our society are commodified. Um. The other thing that's interesting about this episode is in the comics, She-Hulk is a member of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and and goes on like all these adventures with them, right? And they don't have that infrastructure in this episode. I mean, they have the Avengers, but she's not part of them. Mm -hmm. It's largely going to be single female lawyer slash Ally McBeal style show. And so the construct they seem to have settled on for her to have kind of wacky adventures is, Hey, maybe people from the MCU show up and they need to have their cases <laughs> taken care of by her. And cause it's just, it's weird that Wong kind of calls her like needs her help to deal with the devil, the little flying devil things, right? Like it's like, shouldn't he have other resources instead of his lawyer? But I guess she happens to be there. Uh, and maybe that's what the structure of the show is going to take is like, they want, they want She-Hulk to go on like wacky adventures, right? But she's still a lawyer primarily. And so the way they're going to do it is through her clients, probably. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm um, fine with that. I don't I don't want like another Avenger. I don't want another character who whose show is, you know, going to be a platform for, for them to join some bigger group. And, you know, eventually it's probably going to happen. But for yeah. now, it's like, all right, she's... In, in the grand scheme of the MCU, she is basically an ancillary character 
who has gotten her own show. And yeah, she has some of the media spotlight, uh, but she doesn't clearly doesn't want to be an Avenger and just wants to be a lawyer. And I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm curious, like, if all these things are going to tie together in a satisfying way, like the people who attacked her and this copyright, this trademark infringement and mm-hmm. Renee Elise Goldsberry's character and uh, <laughs> and whether Bruce Banner, uh, like what Bruce Banner is up to in space, you know, like all these things are being introduced and it feels like the show is just kind of like, Hey, we're just chilling. You know, it doesn't, yeah. we're not in a hurry to get anywhere. And mm-hmm. I think that's completely fine. Um, and so one thing I'm hoping doesn't happen is uh, this week Wong brings up, oh, you know, if Donnie Blaze does this, that, and the other, it unravels, you know, X, Y, Z. And it, it seems like it's some kind of reference, like, oh, multiverses, like every other Marvel show at this point. Uh, but, like, I, ho- I hope that doesn't go anywhere. I agree with you that things you <laughs> mentioned should have, yeah. like, resolutions and tie together. I do not want them to follow this one thread. Uh, I would be fine if this has nothing to do with the multiverse stuff. <laughs> I would agree. Um, let me ask you a personal question. So, oh, no. have, you ever, have you used Tinder before? I, I have yeah. never oh, used yeah. Tinder because I, I I kind of went off the market right around the time that Tinder mm-hmm. became a big deal. Uh, so, I'm curious, like, if you feel that this episode captures the. Uh, I have used dating apps, and I found mm-hmm. them very uh, dehumanizing and um, demoralizing to use in general. Uh, and I'm curious if you uh, found that the uh, the show's depiction of the modern dating scene for 30-somethings to be accurate. So I'm 30 and I haven't used a dating app in four and a half, five years because uh, I haven't been single in that long. But um, that date that she goes on with the guy who only seems interested in talking about himself um, and has basically only shown up for that purpose... Like, I've been on that date. I've been, like, Jen in that scenario mm-hmm. where you show up and the other person... You've been, just you've been wants... on both sides, probably, so not... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Excuse me? I'm just All right, you can host this podcast on your own from now on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right, now I know what you really think of me. I kid, I kid. All right, so, so sorry, you, you want me to speak? Yes, You want me to ahead. speak, just confirming? <laughs> go ahead, yeah. Okay. Indeed, indeed. I'm David Chen. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> I forgot what I was saying. God damn it! <laughs> you you've been on dates where like yeah, the person yeah, yeah. doesn't ask anything about you. Yeah. Where it's like, look, honestly, like I, I would say most I, of the dates that I've been on through dating apps have not been good. But that's also, I guess, just the nature of like you know, they haven't been like disastrous dates. But it's like you know, you 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 go on dates, you don't connect with people. Sometimes things are awkward, whatever. Like I've been on a few good ones, but um, like you, you find that most of the horror stories tend to come from 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 women. So this is probably like, you know, as much as I called it like you know a Twitter thread depiction, like those Twitter threads are also like you know based in yeah. reality to, it, to it, some it, degree. It, it does seem to be mostly men, you know, in these situations that uh, don't ask any questions and talk only about themselves. You know, that, yeah. that seems to be the stereotype. Yeah, and um, uh, you're putting you're lumping in lumping me in with them. I feel no. Like, yeah. I, I'm saying men in general, <laughs> Saddam, inclu- including including myself, including myself. Me, I'm a very inquisitive person. You know, uh-huh. I would never dream of just uh, like it. Uh, it's probably the opposite problem. I'd ask too many questions. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, which, but I understand which, that that's not usually the case. Which does bring to mind like the guy that she has the the seemingly good date with, like 
is what I'm wondering is, and I don't think this is something the show will answer, and that's completely fine. Is he like, is everything he's doing and saying genuine? And then he suddenly loses interest and goes cold when he sees, you know, the real Jen? Or is that just like his game? Like that he knows well, first, first oh, women all, his... like to be asked questions. Let me do yeah. that and get well, into bed all, with he her. First of all, he barely did anything positive before she was really into him. He yeah. just wasn't a complete asshole, you know? Yeah. Um, so that showed like how low the standards have gotten. But then he was reading that book by Roxane Gay. Uh, but I think, I think it's to show that, yes, it was genuine, but that like even despite that, um, men can still compartmentalize and make um, choices that on their surface and, and not, not even on the surface, just in reality are very cold and calculating, you know, that they're like, he's into her for this reason because mm. he, she satisfies some kind of fetish or some kind of interest that he has mm, in mm-hmm. that form uh, and, and serves no other purpose for him. Right. And that's, yeah. uh, it's a reminder of even the nicest guy can have that kind of element of coldness to them. So, mm-hmm. Anyway, any other thoughts on the episodes that Ante Um uh, Nikki, that's her name. The uh, the paralegal. Yes, she's Marvel queer. Mm-hmm. What is that? In, as in, like, there's like an offhanded reference that oh, maybe, maybe she might possibly be gay, and we can talk about it in the press. And uh, like, I think she says something like, uh, "Oh, you know, hetero dating life is so." I think she she uses mm-hmm. the word like hetero dating. It's like, oh, maybe yeah. she's maybe she's queer. So I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, but it's it, it feels like a very Marvel thing to do. Um, so we'll see what happens. There is this trend online, like going on right now in TV and films, of creators of TV shows uh, and actors from TV shows saying, "Oh yeah, the character I play is queer or bi or gay or mm-hmm. whatever." Because um, I believe the actress well, is bi, right? While while the show or the movie does virtually nothing to actually depict what that uh, what a character with that you know with those characteristics would actually be, um, and there's many economic reasons why the show would choose not to do yep. this um, uh, to make it more palatable for international audiences, to make it more palatable for domestic audiences, <laughs> and uh. And so it's kind of their way of having their cake and eating it too, in the sense that they, they can say, oh, this is representation, uh, while not actually doing the challenging work that true representation uh, might take. Yeah. Uh, did I do a good job of summarizing it there? Thank um, you for doing that so that I didn't come off as like overly dismissive. You really saved me there. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you, were, you were not dismissing the idea of a character being bi. You're dismissing the idea of a character being bi offhandedly. You know, yeah, which lip, is uh, lip service. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, anyway, those are our thoughts and reactions for She-Hulk season one, episode four. Is this really? Yep. Go ahead. Hold on. We 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 spent so much time talking about the Sopranos. Uh, you're not going to give me any time to talk about This Is Us, the other show that Wongers was watching. <laughs> yeah. So he switches from the Sopranos to This Is Us, which is actually like a really big tonal shift. I uh-huh. would say, right. But yes, uh, tell us about your love of This Is Us, Sidon. I love This Is Us. Thank you for listening. <laughs> uh, it's a show you would wholeheartedly recommend. It's Absolutely. Yeah. One of my all-time favorites. The only show that I can safely say has genuinely impacted my outlook on life. And it's also wow. really funny. Really, really funny. Okay. 
Well, those are our thoughts on She-Hulk episode four, Is This Not Real Magic? Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Uh, and you can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash decoding TV. Email us at decoding TV at gmail.com and support this podcast at decoding TV.com. Siddhanth, where can people find your work on the internet? I'm on Twitter at at Siddhanth Adlaka, which is my name. All right. And we'll see you next week for another discussion of She-Hulk, this time season one, episode five. Uh, Siddhanth's going to be traveling next week, so there's going to be no main topic. We're just going to dive right into the episode and we'll see how it goes. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you later. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.